My purpose as a narrator is more like the the wandering Buddhist monk in the no drama who lets the cat out of the bag or gives the the key to the thing, you know? Because what we are showing is so, uh, in one way, so uh, psychically explosive, it needs to be it needs to be buttressed in every way it can with with ridiculousness and mundanity. That's my job in it as a storyteller to, to both tell something which people are not going to believe, and also try to ex- explain to them why, due to some fault of my own, that in fact I'm not telling the truth. About it. Produced and recorded at Pure Grain Studios. I'm Nathan Isaac, and this is Pennyroyal. Dan Dutton is a Kentucky artist that I've been working with for the last few years and a very, very good friend of mine. He and I have collaborated on a number of projects together and are currently collaborating on a film that attempts to retrace his steps in a trip that he took in 2007 while working on an an opera called The Fawn. The story would begin in. 2007, I think, I was getting ready to start working on a new artistic project. And um, I just finished a really big project had to do with um, ballads. You know, a lot of murders and a lot of um, modules of information, each ballad being kind of world in and of itself, which was evoked through a song. So in order to have a large set of them. And I, I did a set of 36. You have to learn a lot of long stories and yeah. the worlds that they're evoked. So I was already really examining both how uh, characters appear and represent um, gender and violence. Cause there was a lot of that mm-hmm. and those things. So I, almost as a kind of a gift to myself, the next piece that I did was not so ambitious in one way. At the time, it didn't seem so ambitious anyway. Um, I was not going to work with as many people. I only worked with three people, really. Uh, so I had gone from a very, very large set of people to a to really small one. And the gift to myself was that it was going to be Greek mythology that I was kind of that I was going to bone up on because part of what I, my work is about is about studying mythologies. Okay. okay. You know, and how beings or characters appear in them and how that phenomenon takes place and is characterized. So it, I had been really fascinated by the Greek, Greek mythology since I was a small child, I became interested, even obsessed with it. And gradually, honed into my favorite of the 
of the gods and goddesses, which itself is a kind of devotion to a semi-religion, right? Yeah. By choosing yeah. the one that you like the best. Yeah. It was Neptune for a long, long time because I'm very aquatic. But then I realized, no, it's Pan is the one that I really like the best in this, you know? And so this is going to be my gift to myself as an artistic project. I'm going to do a piece about Pan because it's been a long time since I had read what was available about Greek mythology. And I recently read a book by an Italian mythologist, Roberto Colasso. It's a very, very brilliant retelling of the Greek myths. I thought I knew everything about them. I thought I had read everything about them, but this man had uncovered so many amazing connections that I was like, I wonder what else, I wonder what else has been written and what's taken place in the realm of academic Greek mythology. What other archaeological things have been unearthed? What all is going on? This is going to be the thing. I'm going to find out everything there is to be known about Pan and that's going to be what the work is going to be about. Dan's life is definitely immersed in mystery and magic. And this whole area seems to be... There's this quality of, of everything that he's working on is, and, and that everything he's ever worked on that delves into the, the mysteries inherent in life and existence and, and this concept of the other world, of liminal states, of dream states. This idea of alchemy and elementals and crossing over and speaking with gods. And it's all baked into Dan's entire existence. Every day of his life, that's the magic that he's always chasing. And that's the magic that he's always trying to convey in all of his art. And I had a locus for it. I had a point in art, art history that I believed was a real, marked a real point in this image that was in 1911 when Vaslav Mijinsky the ballet Russe choreographed and danced this thing called the afternoon of the fawn after he'd seen a Greek vase in the British museum that had fawns or satyrs chasing nymphs around on the outside of it so he invented a ballet which was shocking it's modernism based on a poem by a poet who had tried to remove syntax from language and free it of that kind of structure. So the first real modernist writer in one way, possibly. And Claude Debussy, the musician who wrote it, who was trying to kind of transform music into a way to represent things, not like painting does or photography does, but somehow some parallel to the experience of spaces or natural phenomena or stories or whatever than being made, you know, out of musical, purely musical materials and some kind of simulacrum of the thing. Dan has numerous artworks. His most well-known works are The Secret Commonwealth, a four-part opera cycle, dance opera, that he composed over a 12-year period in which KET filmed 
if you're not familiar with the secret commonwealth the original secret commonwealth it was a collected stories and folklore by robert kirk in the late 1600s around 1690 and it's a treatise on fairy folklore ghosts paranormal witchcraft magic Kirk collected these stories from the people in the Scottish Highlands, and it's probably the most famous work on fairies. Obviously, Dan's The Secret Commonwealth is a nod to that earlier work, since his four-part operas, all four of the operas, deal with that other world, the land of the fae, and there, there are fairies in The Secret Commonwealth, and elementals, and alchemy, and magic, and mystery. The final piece, the final opera in his Secret Commonwealth is called The The Approach of the Mystery. He and I were recently discussing The Secret Commonwealth and how it relates to a lot of what we've been working on together. Focusing on The Secret Commonwealth itself, by the point in time that I got through this stone man, which was work done with a, a tr- traditional performance s- structure, the structure of an opera company, and and, and had the experience realize how my work is transformed by going through a, a method like that, and also what I learned in the process of it <clears throat> that made it possible to transform my own work. It's really obvious that the, the, the secret commonwealth would have the structure that it did have. And it's kind of funny that, in one way, that um, opera having been the word chosen finally to handle this medium that I was working in, since it's uh, the technical definition is that it's an extended story told through music. So extended is the operational thing. It needs to be like fairly big, fairly complex. <clears throat> Once I knew that it was opera, but also that the traditional opera that had preceded, it was unlikely to be the medium that it would exist in. So it formed the realization I would need to form my own company so that there could be dance incorporated into it was a realization. But also what it was going to be kind of comically took something from the opera world, which is Wagner's Ring Cycle, just like the most unwieldy of huge, of huge operas <clears throat> or series of operas, and one which I do not have any musical affection for whatsoever. So um, it was a little bit odd, but it did perform. It did provide a model of a grand scale uh, something, and also a kind of model that um, ritual theater, albeit uh, strangely. A strangely weird form of it, kind of Nazi-esque form of, of traditional theater, would be itself a kind of ritual and would kind of generate some of the other things we're talking about. But it's um, it's the French phenomenologist Gaston Bachelard that at that point in time had set me in motion. I had... I had utilized a lot of the ideas in his work and working on the Stone Man. Really, it without that, I would I would have been I would have been searching for clues for a long time if it hadn't been for his work. That's for sure. 
So that being done, I realized that his definition of the of um, being being split into the idea of the will or the this the part of the being that's going to do things and the reverie or the imagination that part of the being that dreams things remembers and dreams in the process of remembering and also extends into the unknown through dreaming that that I was going to need to figure out how that worked and the way to do it was to create the pieces which did that thing figured out something about how they worked so I that it was going to be a cycle that you would go through that it would have to be more than one level to this story was real obvious so it's logical beginning at beginnings to begin with childhood and the memories of childhood which is the actual portal into that world is through the memories of childhood not the not the fantasies or reveries of the child but the the fantasies of the adult remembering the child they were and the dreams they had then this were that's the power generator in that thing so um mapping out that one was a thing the first opera in the secret commonwealth the changeling the bear is about the imagination and memory of childhood the second one is about um linear space and time as a hierarchical organization of the memory or in other words how um, life is imagined as being a journey and my idea in that was that I would take a journey and note everything that happened during the journey and those would be the f- features of the archetypal journey opera so I went into the desert and in fact all those things necessary to make a very long opera did happen so the second one is about the imagination um, of how life is imagined as being a journey but also about how the will itself works because that was a piece designed to be like the journey itself long and difficult you know it was manifestation of it in the theater was made to be correspondent to um, the type of epic story that it was telling so it was for the dancers it was a long very long piece that was very difficult it's really an opera about um, a whole different system of reality um, one which is one which humans can only recognize because of the temporal limitations they have they recognize it in a different form than elfland beings who have a different temporal reg- recognition love is still a common it's a common experience that's held between these two types of beings but the way it is described or experienced is entirely different because of temporality. So it's like the opera tries to set up an, a demonstration of how that works. Um, the Approach of the Mystery was originally going to be called The Approach of the Mystery of Death. It was going to be about how the imagination approaches 
the reality of death um, and attempts and attempts to, to comprehend it or experience it and is and is blocked by the mystery itself. I mean it's like a series of of um, mysterious barricades that that only the dying and the psychopomps that accompany them can pass through the different levels of them. So it also seemed like that of necessity since the imagination is tied to the elements and is elemental in its nature that this would be a sequence of the elements themselves um, that would form the, the series of gates to the to the realm of the dead. I changed the title to The Approach of the Mystery plainly because it became pretty clear that no one makes it that far. You know? They make it <laughs> they make it to the mystery and that's as far as they make it. The living don't make it to the land of the dead and come back to tell the tale um, of it. But they can get extraordinarily close to it depending on how many how many of those levels you go through. Here's another thing that maps out the 77 things in the secret commonwealth and how they're connected by elementals. Okay, so here's a mouse-eaten map that shows where the the territory of the fallen is and all of these other pieces and how they're connected together and in increasing your awareness. Is this the Omnichronic? This is the Omnichronic, yeah. <sighs> the Omnichronic. So you really did put the years on all of this. 66, 75? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, yeah, yeah, to an extent. And then the abyss of sleep. <laughs> well, this represents like um, increasing awareness. There's like in the abyss of sleep, you're not, you don't have consciousness of. Do we have any consciousness if stuff moves around in the abyss of sleep? You have a vague sense of it after you wake up or come up out of it that something was down there, but you don't really know anything about what it was. Just that you were. And that's itself like a metaphorical transformation. It's like, you're, you're, are you diving down into the abyss when you sleep? Is that what happens? The bed like go like that and you fall through the bottom of it. I mean, that's our imagery, right? Because we have connected our sense of gravity with consciousness itself. You have to stand upright. This also leads to the fawn's erection, too, in another sense. And then they're like non-lucid dreams, which are, they do contain tremendous amounts of information, but it's completely unprocessed information, too. It has to be, you know, it has to be storytelling at the very least that takes place before it even has a, much of a shape. And they vanish very quickly, too, you know, unless they're sustained through um, art and constant... Um, putting energy in them to keep them vitalized, they tend to disappear really quick. Only certain kinds like reoccurring dreams or super strong nightmares or, you know, 
things like that actually have lasting power. Whereas lucid dreams, where you're aware that you're dreaming or part of a project, right? That you are, uh, or um, if not a project, at least some um, some psychological skill, you know, like magic power or whatever that that allows you to lucid dream. And in those, potentially, it's possible that you can make aesthetic decisions as well. It's not like most virtual realities or CGI-made things which in which the rocks are not hard or heavy. And, you know, it, it, it's... Um, those are compared with this kind of thing. Those things are phantasms. They're 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 on their only roots they have are to to previous visual art styles, but no real roots into the elemental world itself. Only by hearsay, just like. But this thing it, it does it does have those links because you can't even get to the places in it until you've gone through all of this training. You know, entrainment to be able to get the doors to open, including things like this. So the elemental thing, I couldn't find one of these. I made this for the the group of eighteen dancers who did the approach to the mystery, which is all about the elements. There's some missing missing cards, but you get the idea. You just go through them, earth, water, air, fire, one after another, and that. It's like, it's like the, the, if you were looking at it the other way, it's like you're going up the, the mountain of it, you meet the elementals at the bottom of it, but by the time you get to the top of the thing, you've not just met them, you've, you've learned how to be them, so... And this is really the, in one way, is the proper entrance to the fawn, too, because this labyrinth is the grotto itself, you know, the, the, the labyrinth that this thing is a guide through um, is, is really um, a training session for learning how to access the elementals. And also, in the same Enneagram-ish kind of thing of finding out which one of them you are. A couple years ago, in the fall, Dan and I were spending the afternoon together, and the subject of fairies came up, as it often does, at his farm called Dandyland, where his studio is, and it's, it's, it's a place where lots of art is created. And it's a very inspiring place. It's his family farm, the Dutton family. It's it's also a famous site of a civil war battle on Dutton Hill. There's something special there. And so we were spending the afternoon. It was one of those magical afternoons. And we were talking about fairies. And he asked if I wanted to hear a fairy tale. And so he went and got this book on fairies and, and began reading it to me. They were some crazy, crazy stories. And so we were discussing fairies, and he said, I've got another strange story about fairies and other things that happened to me in 2007 in Elkhorn City. And so he began to recount that story to me, and I was absolutely blown away by the end of it. 
And I told him we had to make this into a film. We had to tell this story to other people. And, and it's such a mysterious and magical thing. And in order to make the film, we needed to restage the fawn in Elkhorn City, in Brakes Interstate Park, where this really strange thing happened. But we would need new actors. They would need to be trained in the fawn dance. They would have to undergo the ritual practice that Dan used to train the original dancers. And then began our search for the fawn. We started interviewing various individuals that we thought had fawn-like qualities. Each one of these potential candidates would have to be told the story of the fawn and what happened in Elkhorn City. And this is one of the recordings from one of those interviews. And I think this captures some of that magic of the original telling that I heard that moved me to want to make the piece, to make the film with Dan. I had gotten this honey job that I described to you now of, of driving over through Eastern Kentucky. And I had been there before because my ballad mentor, Jean Ritchie, her family lived in Viper, Kentucky. And, and I, I went over there and played poker with her sisters sometimes um, because they could sing too. And I was learning old songs from them. Anyway, I really liked it over there. And I, I felt, fairly comfortable, but I'd never really spent any time. On this trip, I was actually not sure how long I was going to stay over there. I had the option of staying as long as I wanted in a way. I knew I wasn't going to stay more than three days or something, three or four days, because I had other things that I was doing, namely the fawn that I was working on. So, But I felt like, okay, this is great. It'd be great to get out and do something entirely different and and this would be very pleasant. So I drove to Whitesburg first, right? And I went for two reasons, because I knew some filmmakers there at Apple Shop. And so I was going to drop in and see. I'd never seen that place. So I was going to go and see Apple Shop and say hello to my friends there. And also to eat at the cafe that they have there, which is kind of a known thing. And I was curious about Whitesburg, which is like a kind of, a democratic stronghold, you know, there in, in Eastern Kentucky too. So I was kind of curious. And anyways, I went there and I, and I, I parked my car and I got out and I went to the, like their visitor welcome center kind of thing, or like, you know, it's an office really that they had there and um, introduced myself and told them what my project was that I was there doing because I had made up my mind. I was going to be like very forthcoming every time that I talked to people so that they would know what they were getting into. Cause I was supposed to write this text, which was upon which tourism is going to hinge in that area, you know? So I was, I wanted people to be honest with me, but I wanted to be honest upfront with them about what I was why was I there and what, why was I asking people questions? You know, I was going to explain that first. And I think I was looking out because Somerset actually is kind of a little bit more accepted as being part of Eastern Kentucky than like Lexington or Richmond is. So I had a little bit of cred somehow being from Somerset and I, I, I liked being there. Anyways, I asked them about what there was to see and what there was to do around there and beyond what I knew. And I went and um, they told me that there was this 
really neat waterfall that was over. One of the questions I asked was if you if you had a day, a free day, you know, you didn't have anything at all that you had to do. What where would you go here to do? You know, where would you go? What would you go and do if you could if you could have a free day and just do anything you want to, what would you do? And a lot of people told me about this waterfall that's just over the mountain. It's like a little park. You could hike up to this waterfall. A lot of people mentioned it was really pretty. They liked going up there, have a picnic or, you know, so I knew I was going to go up there and see that place. I went and ate in the cafe. I came back. There's only like, there's not even quite two streets. There's almost like just, yeah, two streets. One kind of tees into, almost hits a triangle in one way there. And I had gone down this street and I had parked a diagonal, n- not that far from where the visitor office place was. And when I came back down, the cafe was up here on this other street and I just walked to it. And when I walked back down and came back down to where my car was, my car was gone. You know, and I was like, I know, you know, it's okay. So I can be really flaky, real flaky, like artists flaky. However, my orientation in space is usually pretty firm, like where east, west, north, and south is, and how I'm oriented to the earth is that I'm usually really good about distances and things, pretty good. Uh, all of that thing. So I was like, I walked up the street. I walked back down the street. I kept looking at the same parking spot, you know, and then I thought, was it on the other side of the street? I mean, it's, I didn't want it to be gone. I had just gotten this, this car, this Jeep Cherokee. And I, I just gotten it. It was not brand new, but it was pretty new. It was new to me. And uh, here I've, I've misplaced it now, you know, or it's been towed off, you know. I was like, oh, it's probably been towed. And I was like, what a bummer. I'm like, just starting, you know, this. And now already my vehicle's been towed. And I looked down the other side of the street and I went back and I stood and looked at the spot. Finally, the woman in this place there came out and said, you know, this, is there something, something you're looking for? I, I was like, I think my car must have been towed, you know, because I parked it right here and it's, it, you know, it's not here. And um, so, you know, she took me to the police station, which was right next door, actually, there to whatever. And no, no, no cars had been, no cars had been towed at all. So it wasn't towed. And I thought, oh, God, somebody's stolen it. It's like even worse than I thought, you know, it's like stolen. Now I'm going to have to report an accident. And I don't have a car and, was, you know, I was going to have all this fun. And now the whole day is completely shot. But this time, a couple of people had gathered around trying to help me in my, you know, my state or whatever that I was in. <laughs> and one of them said, um, have you looked in the in the parking lot, you know, across over there? It was like a whole parking lot there, you know, on, it's on this 
I thought it was down here on this street. And over here on the other side of the T, there's this big parking lot. It's quite a ways up the street. So I walk up there. I walk there and there's my car. It's not any place I parked it. You know, unless something is really, really wrong with my memory. (laughs) You know, and it could be. And I knew even at the time that it could be because I had done a lot of research into lucid dreaming enough to get myself in real hot water with it, you know? So I couldn't literally be sure about anything for sure. You know, I can pull my hands up and look at them and lucid dreaming. I cannot any longer pop out the top of it anytime that I want to. <laughs> you know, it used to be it used to be a great trouble because I couldn't stay long enough to get anything done. Now it's the opposite. But I got in my car grateful, okay? You know, at least I had the car. And now I would c- continue on, but I was quite discombobulated. You know, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Of that, some you know, what was that? It seemed, it seemed good to head on up the mountain, you know, and go over to the other side. And I got to this little park up there, which was real small. It had a sign. It was like, I don't know, it wasn't very far, like maybe a mile and a half to the waterfall or something like that, up the trail. It said trail closed, you know, at sunset. You know open at sunrise, closed at sunset. And maybe there was even some kind of like more stricter thing than that saying, you know, I don't, I can't really remember. The sign is still there, I'm sure. That'll be an easy one to get. Um, So I I thought, well, it was almost, because sun was getting close to going down, but I thought I probably got an hour um, of time and I'll just hot foot it up there. I'll just halfway run up the whole thing and I'll be there in no time, you know. I can do that. And I could snap pictures on the way, too, even while I'm going. So I took off, and I loped all the way up through the thing, and I got up there in plenty of time, a little hot. It was actually still a little early spring heat, but it was. I remember feeling like a little hot from running up this this hill to this waterfall. And when I was just kind of – I took some pictures of the waterfall, and it was real cool – you know, and I like was looking around and I thought, wow, it's been so long since you've been out in the woods by yourself where you could have some kind of strange experience. You know, I had been, my life had been taking me into cities and a lot in a different direction. And I really had, I'd been around a lot of people all the time too. And I didn't have much time that I was entirely alone by myself out in the woods, which I really like. Mm-hmm. a lot so i thought yeah now something really strange could happen you know and inside my head i heard a voice in my head you know and i know people say this all the time it's like a cliche right i'm setting cliche scene for you that the voice in the head i had never had a voice in my head that had ever said anything to me this was distinctly a voice and the voice said um Unless you agree not to take picture of it, you're not going to see anything out of the ordinary. 
you can either agree right now that no matter what you see, you won't take a picture of it. You know? So I'm like, I thought that's so weird, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I said yes. Of course I said yes. You know, I did say yes. However, I was already worried that I had broken the rule, right? Because I can I can record what I see. You know, I can visually cause it to reappear. I can make word pictures of it and cause it to reappear. I actually can. I didn't know whether I was breaking the rule or not breaking the rule, but I was okay with not using the camera anymore. So I went back down the hill and I just barely got it out before it really got dark. And I go down, I follow the river along. I go through mining towns, you know, like these sort of like artificial towns that sprung up around mining things that are now kind of barely hanging on and eventually come to this place called Elkhorn city. Right. That's I knew once I got to Elkhorn city, I was go up the mountain and there was a lodge on the top that was partly on West Virginia and partly on Kentucky. Or is it Virginia? It's Virginia and Kentucky. They co-share a lodge and a park. It's the only one in the U S that's, that's co-shared by two States. And I was thrilled about going to see it. You know, that was going to be fun. It's dark, and I go across the river to Elkhorn City. I go start heading up, and I'm going to stay, get, try to get a room in this lodge. And halfway up the the side of the mountain, there I see a, a hotel that's off in the pine trees off to the side. It even had the sign that went... On it, you know, so I thought, I think I'll stop here and see if they have a room and stay here instead. <laughs> Which just, I just was, I was overcome by curiosity at this point. You know, I was just getting curious, it was all getting curiouser and curiouser seeming to me, like it didn't seem quite real. And I was real keen to see how far that was going to go. So I go in, and in fact, the man behind the desk had one eye and one arm. (laughs) Which I thought just, I was like, then I was just kind of shaking my head, you know. So I talked to him, and I did my spiel. I told him I was there writing this thing about tourism and asking about all the things. And he was like, um... And I asked if there was any place I could get something to eat because I was starving. And um, he said, the only place there is is the Rusty Fork back down the hill. And, and you know, go back down there and Joe Schmo or some guy is going to, he'll be playing Rook there inside and ask them, you know, what's your, your question? He's the one. He knows all the, everything about everything that's happened around here. So I go back down the hill and I go into this place, the Rusty Fork. It's a restaurant, like place with, like, uh, with, with kind of booths that are naga hide. You know, the old style where you can like talk over the back of one of them to the other. In fact, that's what I wound up doing. I, I introduced myself to the guy. They paused. He said, "Let me finish my game and then I'll talk to you." So I go over. I sit down and I order some fried food. Um, and the 
Scott on the other side said, I, you know, I overheard what you were asking the guy there, you know, and uh, I was like, yeah, you know, I gave him my spiel uh, again. And uh, he started talking. He was a policeman there and he had a cast on one leg. <laughs> right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I talked to him and I asked him the questions and he he was, you know, he's very, he told me a lot of stuff about the, you know, he answered a lot of questions I had and, and seemed actually to be really easy to communicate with. So I thought, well, I'm going to pitch him a little bit more tricky question. And I said, you know, it's a thing for tourists, you know, um, going into an area that's new to them, any informed tourist that you want to know what danger is. I mean, you know, what's 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 the worst that somebody would have to fear around here? And the guy said, well, we, I mean, you know, like a lot of places, he said, um, the um, Oxycontin is a real problem here. And there are monsters in these churches here. I didn't respond to that line, but it, I noted it very strongly. You know, I'd never heard anyone in any official position ever make a sentence like that. very strange thing. I've had this sort of like, you know, um, Wicker Man feel about, you know that movie, The Wicker Man? <laughs> I had this Wicker Man feel about the whole thing suddenly. Because I was already a little weirded out, right? You know, I had already had two weird things happen in cl close succession to each other, and this one was getting weirder by the minute. So, at that point in time, actually, it got really weird. And it seemed like there were people all around me, kind of close to me, saying, um, Johnny's here. Johnny's here. Have him talk to Johnny. You know? And before I had even time to think, I stood up, you know, because all these people were ushering. It's like They, like, parted. And suddenly, Johnny was, like, up really close in my personal space. You know, like in very close, uh, way too close <laughs> for a first meeting. <laughs> and seeing him up close was quite a phenomena for me. Okay. He was easily the hairiest human being I've ever seen in my life. He wasn't like those wolf, wolf children in Mexico, you know, the ones I'm talking about, but he was. He was getting in that territory. There wasn't any hair around his eyes specifically, but otherwise he seemed to have hair coming out of every square inch of his body. And it seemed to go along with the personality, which was... And he also had the, like, wandering eye, you know, the, the crazy eye that went off, and I was utterly visually fascinated by that, by the hairiness and by the eye that was going off. And he had a unibrow. Too. And I just, those things alone were enough. It's like, oh my God, it's like, that's extremely strange. So I 
I, but I thought, well, I'll be damned if anybody is gonna like bowl me over just by getting up in my face, you know, whatever. So I introduced myself, you know, and I gave him my spiel about finding out about around there. And I, you know, I, I offered my hand for a handshake, and he shook my hand, which when I shook his hand, it was quite startling experience because based on what else had been happening, I expected a certain thing to happen. But instead, it was like shaking hands with a snail. Exactly the thought I had in my mind at the time was it was like a snail. Not only was it not aggressively giving any pressure, but it was withdrawing like a snail's antennas withdraw into it. And then I realized I was in a very hypersensitive state, you know, indeed. It was like it was the feeling of like having taken a lot of acid, you know, it was a, definitely that feeling, but I hadn't. And that made it even more edgy feeling. So he started telling me his story, you know, the story of his adventures than who he was, you know, he was obviously the center of this whole thing. In fact, he did own the rusty fork with the building itself so you know um and he was a bit of a character in the town he was a volunteer fireman he was he was everything in some ways he was a quickly told me he was a moonshiner and he took moonshine on his motorcycle down to cherokee north carolina and sold it to cherokees down there in big cove and i know that i know those people my mentor was was in Big Cove and it's actually his relatives that were buying that moonshine and I had been on the other side of that whole phenomenon and had wondered where they got it or whether they made it and he took it down there he was quite condescending about the Indians but he sold them moonshine anyways and that's where I thought I may be killed you know something is going to happen as a result of this what is happening here and I don't know what it is that's going to happen you know I couldn't tell whether it might be something that was sexual or something that was murderous or whether it was mythological or whether it was all three of them at the same time and that just made me more curious and for an artist bait like that is just it's not to be resisted it's to be delighted in, you know. So I, I thought, you know, nobody tells somebody, an outsider, about their moonshining operation, you know, unless you're either going to drink moonshine with them or they're going to be wind up. <laughs> disappearing from the face of the earth in one way or another. So I kind of felt that and went on ahead with it. He's was, then he told me he was a goat. He raised goats and he was, he was crazy about goats. I heard quite a bit about raising goats. Okay. So I had been studying Pan really hard. Pan is the God of the goat herd, right? He's half man, half goat too. I'm like, how is this? How is this all happening this way? You know, that's weird, real weird. He was a coal digger, too, coal miner. He loved it, he said, you know. He did it for fun. 
didn't even do it for money. Just like doing it, you know. But most especially was he was a corpse finder, you know. And his job as a volunteer fireman, he found plenty of them. I, I had asked him about kayaking there. He said, yeah, I found them. I found one after they'd been looking for him for, you know, over a week. The body was completely blue, which he seemed to take quite a delight in telling me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as it gave him a thrill, obviously, to tell it to me, and he expected it to be thrilling to me in some incredibly perverse way as well. <laughs> So I actually talked on with Johnny to midnight. This is not the weirdest thing that's going to happen in this story, by the way. It's about midnight, and we've actually closed the place down. Nobody's left there, and we still talked on. We went out in the parking lot, and we're talking, you know, there. And that's where I thought, oh, this is where he either invites me to go and drink the moonshine or whatever else is going to happen, and what am I going to say? You know, what am I going to do now that I'm out here in the dark? Luckily, I kind of got cold and I begged begged off. I said, yeah, you know, well, it's been great talking to you. I really appreciate you taking so much time to talk to me. You know, maybe we can hook up tomorrow and, you know, there's a lot of other things I'd love to ask you about this. But, you know, I'm real tired and I think I'm going to go up to the hotel and go to bed. And that's where I left Johnny. The last thing he had told me in his venture was actually, he had just discovered that he had leukemia. And this was something which was a new, you know, he had been the, everything he had conquered in his life, you know, but this was another thing he was going to have to conquer. But this one he was thinking about, uh, I found some things about his, his beliefs and, his attitudes about things, you know, a little strange to me, but I did, I had a good feeling towards him, actually. You know, I had decided he was attractive for, by sheer insanity, if no other reason, you know, just like, this is so strange. It's beautiful. Well, I, by the time I got up to the hotel and got to the door of it, I opened the door to unlock the door to my room, which I also thought might be a real problem because sometimes I have trouble with keys, locks, and doors due to other my other adventures that I've had. But in any event, I managed to, I unlocked the door. I went into inside the room and I laid down immediately on the bed because as soon as I went into the dark room, my vision split in half. Look, I saw two separate scenes distinctly, you know, as though they were being seen on on identical screens in front of me. And one of them was the room as it was in the dark, just a little bit of light coming through from the neon outsides or whatever, so that you could make out the forms of the things, the television, the carpet, the cheesy bedspread. It wasn't a fancy room. Um... And I was very determined that I was going to keep that eye, that part of what I was seeing there all the time, you know, because the other thing was so strange and so peculiar that I wanted it to last as long as it could possibly last. 
And basically, it was the experience of being a crow. I had the experience of the way things look when you're flying. They don't look like the things that I thought I saw when I thought that I was a crow were not things like what the human eyeball sees at all. It's not that kind of reality at all. It has a whole different look to it. That's the way I experienced it. I thought I was a crow. I thought I was flying through space and I was flying through something. You know, the space is very different seeming. I'll say that about it. Anyways, there was a point where I actually had I visually felt there was a phenomenon to the thing. It was almost like there were all these structures like fossils or something made out of out of some kind of white hard stuff like crystals or something every which way web works of all these like crystalline structures and in in it was the stuff that was like animated black steel wool you know and i picked it i picked it out with my beak cuz like picking at things was something <laughs> i don't know if all crows are that way or i was just a neurotic crow that liked to pick at stuff you know it was also new to me i didn't really know how to process it but i really picking this black stuff out was just like a fascination to me i just picked and picked and picked and picked at it all all night long basically and then there was a point when the light started changing in the room and the sun came up that it disappeared the 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 picking and the black stuff disappeared and i got up and put my clothes up my clothes on i don't even think i'd taken my clothes off actually i think i just laid down on the bed in my clothes i went back down to the rusty fork and um Johnny wasn't there. I'm not even sure it was the same restaurant that I went back into, same place, same looks, everything seemed the same, but it didn't really seem like it had seemed the night before. Do you know what I'm saying? It didn't seem weird inside it like it had seemed that point in time. So I went to the drugstore that was closest to it. I thought, oh, I'm not going to stick around, actually. I ate breakfast and I thought, I'm, I'm going to go back home. I've had enough, you know, I've had enough. <laughs> this is plenty, you know, I'll come back over and do the other scenic byways on another trip. I think I really, it's time for me to go back home and let this sink in to me, you know, what it's about. But I thought I'm, I'll, I went, I found a card, the only card I could find that was even close to anything that seemed appropriate in this whole drugstore was one that said it was something to the effect is hell is a place where there's no coffee and it, like you know it had like the devil or whatever in hell and the coffee cup or something like that. at least it had horns right you know at least it had horns <laughs> so <laughs> i wrote it and i thanked him again for you know all of his help and told him that concerning the leukemia he didn't have anything to worry about you know, which I wrote with great confidence too. And it, you know, not the platitude of someone who's just giving thoughts and prayers or whatever to this thing. You can see the problems with the story. 
because I'm no longer the me I was when this happened. I'm, I'm older. You know, I'm an older person. I cannot be that person anymore, but you can be that person on that trip. So the ordeal that we're asking you to do is to go to Elkhorn City with us in the spring. But we need to retrace the steps very carefully. Penny Royal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging.